Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 1118-1118 of the Survival Podcast. i got a good one for you today. Lou Hayes on six core tactical skills. Lou's a full-time municipal police officer. Been doing that for 15 years. Been a SWAT officer for 13 and a trainer for 12. So he knows what he's doing. He's going to talk to us about... Six core tactical team skills today and how they interact with each other and how they're the root of everything done in a tactical team environment. Before we bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is uh, the Free State Project. You know, I've got the Walking to Freedom Forum, and I'm basically saying if you live in a state that sucks, Illinois, and I'm sorry to say that given who our, uh, the state where our guest lives in today, but I'm, I'm being honest about that, or, you know, a state that's like really trampling on all the uh, liberties of its people and taxing them into oblivion, California, uh, like that, maybe you should go to a state that's more free. Well, one of the freest states in the country is New Hampshire, and that's in no small part to the work being done by the Free State Project, a group of people who really work hard to help people uh, empower them, basically, to vote with their feet and uh, working really hard to make New Hampshire, again, one of the freest states in the union. Check them out today at freestateproject.org. Next up today um, is Harvest Eating, the awesome chef Keith Snow. Uh, Keith's a good guy. He's been a sponsor for a long time. Yesterday I got a box is a housewarming present from him. In that box was was three huge bags. Uh, the grilled chicken seasoning, low and slow barbecue, and the Montreal steak, which shows that not only is Keith a great sponsor, but he's still listening to the show because those are the three I always mention when I, when I mention his sponsor uh, slot. And the reason isn't because the other three of his seasonings aren't good. It's because those are the best. And I use them all the time. I use the Northern Italian quite a bit, too, with roasting vegetables and all, but man, I'll tell you what, that Montreal steak uh, is just phenomenal. Uh, you want to try something cool with that, get yourself some really good quality grass-fed be- ground beef and mix a little, like a teaspoon of that into uh, a pound of it and make your burgers with that. That's just freaking phenomenal. Uh, he's also got a great podcast and he'll help you learn to cook seasonally and locally, which if you're homesteading is a really great skill to have. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Um, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, and you'll get discounts to over 40 vendors, and your membership will pay for itself. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and other first responders like, let's say, paramedics and EMTs, I do offer you a service discount. To claim that discount before you join, email me at jagatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I'll send you that discount code as long as you email me, what is it now? Before, not after you join. I'm going to bring on Lou in just a second, though. I want to remind you guys, though, again, I will be at the Self-Reliance Expo 
in Arlington, Texas, tomorrow. Uh, if you show up 30 minutes before the doors open uh, for everybody else and go to the front door, Ron or Scott will meet you there and bring you in early. If you just say, hey, I'm with the Survival Podcast. We have a special uh, expert panel put together just for you guys. You can get in before anybody else can. It's going to be myself, Stephen Harris, and David Crawford. David was going to be there Saturday. I'm going to see if I can rope somebody as a stand-in because David's going off to do some relief work down in West Texas now on Saturday, so he won't be available on Saturday, but Harris and I will be there on Saturday as well. Again, this if you look at the posted times on the Self-Reliance Expo website, you guys can get it a half hour early and sit down and, and talk to us. We're just going to kind of informally sit on the stage, take your questions, talk to you guys, maybe give out some swag or something, I don't know, and uh, it, it should be fun. We've done this before. It's always worked out really well. Um, I haven't promoted this heavily this year, and and I'll tell you part of why is man, there was like so many people last year. It was it blew me away, and I don't know if we got to be as intimate as I originally planned, but uh, we'll see how it works out this year. I'm going to put out a post today about it today to remind everybody. I think it'll be fun. Uh, Steve is speaking Friday and Saturday. I don't know if he's doing two subjects or one, but he's speaking both days. I'm only speaking Saturday. I'm doing a two-hour uh, lecture on permaculture, and I will bring you guys a lot of the stuff I've talked about in visual. Uh, I think it's going to be one of the best things I've ever done. It's going to be done, uh, I think, Saturday. I'm speaking from 11 to 1, if I remember right. Again, I'll have all the details out uh, in a post later today. But I hope to see many of you guys there, and uh, you know, maybe we'll grab a beer or something. I don't have a booth. Uh, so I probably won't be there till till the, the event closes. I think they run it till seven or eight o'clock. I'm going to be an early day guy. So if you want to come meet with me, uh, you probably want to get there. I'd say before three o'clock at the latest, both days. Um, and after that, I probably I might be around. I might not. It all depends on what's going on. Um, I try to break out with a small group and have some beers and stuff like that here and there. Uh, it, it just allows me to actually spend some time with a couple people and really uh, hear hear you out. I might even do something Saturday. I'll have to talk to Dorothy and see if it's going to happen. Where I might even do something Saturday where if people want to, they can come out here. It's a pretty good drive. Uh, but if you're interested, let me know by email today, and I'll, I'll see if there's enough interest to do it. But I was thinking maybe just... Uh, uh, maybe like 4.30 or something, 5 o'clock, cut out of there, come back here, have some beers. It'll still be light out. I can kind of show you guys around. There's a lot left to do. It's only beginning, but I can explain my ideas for design and some of the things Jeff and I talked about and, and have a beer and maybe even throw some steak on the grill or something. I can't do that with a ton of people, but, you know, maybe if there's a half a dozen or so, that'd be cool. Let me know. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which, again, are six core tactical team skills. And uh, we're going to go through those and how they relate to each other. And we're going to compare them to simple machines like a wedge, a screw, a wheel, and a lever, uh, which combine to make all other machines. It's a really interesting way of looking at this. Again, uh, my guest today, Lou Hayes, uh, full-time police officer for 15 years, SWAT officer for 13 years, and trainer for 12 years. He sits on a large statewide tactical officers organization. He instructs in weapons, tactics, law, command, rescue, active shooter response, and area searches, including K-9. His partner and he developed a fully integrated system to train these items together rather than in isolated fragments. They teach these as part of a program around the state to various trainers and officers. And with that, hey, Lou, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Oh, thanks, Jack, for having me. I look forward to talking with you and your, and your listeners. 
Well, I, this is something I kind of want to do more, more on tactical skills and tactical skill sets. It's something that maybe we leave out a little bit. Um, basically, I take the guests that show up. I'm glad you're here to talk about this one. And it's a different angle that I've, that I've ever covered this before, so I'm really excited about it. Um, and you talk about something uh, called simple machines. Now, we're, now we're talking about tactical stuff. So what's the idea behind simple machines as it relates to tactical aspects? Well, as a young boy growing up, my dad was always Mr. Fix that he was able to, you know, repair any of the, the appliances in our house, you know, refrigerators and cars and toaster ovens, things like that. So one of the things that he talked to me about was the idea of small parts being a part of something that was more complex. And when you look at things, you know, even from the standpoint of, you know, mechanical engineering, the first thing that you learn about is the simple things, the, the simple machines, you know, and um, modern-day technology has embraced these ideas that there's six of them. There's a lever, an inclined plane, a screw, a wedge, a wheel, an axle, and a pulley. So what happens is you take these simple machines and you start combining them into things of increased complexity. So, uh, you know, the next stages of things are things like uh, gears or racks and pinions or cranks and rods and belt drives. Things that basically the you know you change the force direction or you you give certain mechanical advantages. So you take those and you build even more compound machines with them. And you look at uh, scissors, an axe, uh, a bicycle, or uh, a hand drill, hand egg beater, adjustable crescent wrench, uh, hand can opener. And when you break down those components, you see the same six simple machines. And what we've really never done in the tactical community is taken the complex tactics, you know, that uh, either a military unit or a top-tier police unit uses. So that's what our group has done is we've said, what are those bare components that we can break this down to? Yeah, and before we kind of get into those individual uh, components, just kind of – Let's give where you're coming from. You're you're a, a professional law enforcement officer, and you work with other law enforcement officers, and you guys have done this. You've put this together as a system yourselves, correct? Right. So, you know, throughout my instructor responsibilities, I've been tasked with not only teaching schools for SWAT officers, but to bring that same training to patrol officers, ones that don't have as much background, as much time. And I, I realized that when you're dealing with that limited time, limited money, limited resources, you have to be extremely efficient. And we said if we can teach the bare bones and a, and use that as a core or a crutch, we can do anything more complex with them. So let, let's start establishing what these bare bones skills are. So we start seeing great, great things from our patrol officers. We're saying, hey, we have so much less time, so much less resource, so much less money to put into them, but we think we've given them these core team concepts. Not the techniques, but the concepts that really are the overriding thing. That's where we've seen the most success in those that don't have the time and uh, the energy to put in full-scale full exercises over and over again. Awesome. Now, you're using interesting terminology there with the, the, the teamwork take to terminology because we're going to go through your six tactical team skills here in just a second, one at a time. But what, I, you know, what, I'm, what I'm hearing in there is a general concept of working 
multiple people, individuals that work together as a unit. And there has to be some general aspects of that that carry through to why these skills work that way. So that might apply to anything from a sports team or a sales team or a manufacturing facility, the military, a, a band, a church, a family. Certainly, you know, you look at teamwork from soft skills. Like soft skills are things that that are less technical. And those soft skills are things like having a common goal, diversity in tasks. You mentioned a band. Well, it's not a band if you don't have a bunch of different instruments. And the same goes in, a, in the tactical community, that you have different skills, different uh, different weaponry, different tools, different devices. And then there's a component of leadership, somebody that actually starts making decisions and starts making plans. And the communication, so all those things work seamlessly. So those soft skills, to some extent, are even more critical. But then when you have to get into actually being concrete, you have to say, well, how do they harmonize together? What are they, how do each of them play off of one another? There's, so we start breaking these down into, well, the basic team is two. So once we start establishing what the concepts of how two things can relate to one another, we can start to multiply that into threes, fours, fives, platoons, brigades. So we really find it important to embrace the soft skills, but then start saying, okay, so what are the diversity of tasks in the tactical environment? What are the different roles? What are the different goals? And, again, that's where we bring in a little bit more concrete uh, side of this with our 16 tactical concepts. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I've worked with people in business, and they've had a hard time understanding that at some point there's a leader uh, because they come from a, a society now where everybody's equal and, and they don't get that, you know, you, you what you said there, you know, I can't have two conductors for a band and have them harmonized. Uh, somebody's got to be in charge. And then when, when you're, you know, under fire, there has to be a team leader that makes the decisions. That doesn't mean that every member's not vital, but there has to be that, that team cohesion and there has to be one person in charge of that individual, uh, team's movement or, Bad things happen. Even if both 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 leaders can be completely competent, but having that two directional head, it just it, it gets you killed, literally. Yeah, but you know that's not to say that it's going to be the same one head each time. Sometimes that Correct. person starts to change off because of where you're at or what you know or what your skills are. You say, you know what, you're in a better position to make the call on this one, and that's why it's so important to develop the leadership skills that are that are necessary for. A tactical environment, rapidly evolving, tense, uncertainty. So we need to be able to empower people to make those decisions based off of what we believe the leadership position, who, whoever holds it, wants. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So let's kind of go through the six core tactical team skills. The first one is priority of fire. Explain priority of fire, please. Well, I don't want to say the first they're all of, of equal importance, but we'll get to it first. Priority okay. fire. If you are behind me, please don't shoot. <laughs> yeah. It seems, it seems so simple, but so many times in law enforcement, we see officers, whether in, in training or even in real-life events, that they're behind another officer and they don't anticipate the movement, whether it's the officer in front standing up, moving left or right in front of that field of fire. And just that quick delay in the, in the decision to use force, whether it be 
a rifle, a pistol, a beanbag, a taser. Any of those weapons needs a clear path. So it's very simple. That says, if you're behind me, I don't want you to, to fire. I don't want you to deploy that weapon behind me. So if we're in a hallway, we start to get constricted. There's front and rear officers. You, there may not be room for left and right for you all to be up on the same line. So there's certain things that we do to train a priority of fire and uh, certain ways that we can recognize it and make movements based on it. Okay, next on the list then is crossfire. Well, I think everybody gets crossfire. If you're across from me, don't shoot. And <laughs> what happens here is you have a person, you know, whether it be an assailant or a criminal, that's between two members of the team. And this very frequently happens when you're searching areas where the officers can swarm from various angles, right? Like a car stop, let's say. If police officers are making a stop on an automobile, officer comes up from the left and the right, they immediately get put into a crossfire situation. So this is important to recognize that, again, in a dynamic environment, a lot of pieces are moving, and at times you may have an officer in front or behind you or across from you, which is why we lump together priority fire and crossfire, which is basically be aware of what your surroundings are, where your other teammates are, and don't put yourself or others in bad situations. That's an interesting one because as you think about that, you can understand why that one happens. Let's say you and I were working together as two officers and we had a, a person, a vehicle stop. It would be completely reasonable that I might take the passenger side and you, ch you take the driver's side because if the guy bails, we have both sides where we can cut off his, his avenue of escape. Now, all of a sudden, that situation turns lethal. So what are some things that can be done? Because there are going to be times where you do that. I mean, the first thing that springs to mind for me is, you know, one officer toward the front, one officer toward the rear of the side so that they're not directly across from each other. You can still end up in a crossfire situation, though. So how would you handle that? That's just one simple situation. Well, we can bring it right back to one of the third skills, which is flanking, which is starting to create a 90 degrees of separation whether you call it L ambush, whether you call it a triangulation or flanking, what it essentially means is that you're going to create an L, right? And in that middle is where your danger area or your suspect or, or your unknown is going to be. So you have officers that both have angles of fire down those two legs of the L. So we can still cover those other avenues of escape but you don't have to be directly in front of it. You're basically blading off on it. And it's important to get into those L configurations or the triangulations before things go bad so you don't have to react. It's just, oh, it's going to be forced. I better move to get into an L configuration and out of my crossfire. How about we instead strive to not be in the crossfire to begin with and start off with this 90-degree triangulation? So in that situation I just outlined, Basically, that, that was the solution that I gave one officer at a different angle than, than the other officer so that both lines of, uh, of egress are covered, yet the, the officers aren't lined up across from each other. Right. I mean, that's basically police academy week one with, with car stops. Is, hey, one officer's at the driver's door talking to the motorist, and the backup or cover officer is back at you know, maybe the quarter panel of the passenger side. 
So there is that configuration of an L or a very, very small flanking positions. So when I see a, a, a multi-officer stop and I see both officers with their heads in the window, I'm right when I cringe, that's what you're saying? Yeah, we cringe too. And then we talk <laughs> about it later. Always wondered about that because I've seen it and you just go, that just doesn't look right to me. That looks dangerous. I mean, maybe at that point, you know, and I'm a, I'm a third-party observer. I don't know. Maybe at that point they've already kind of determined there isn't really a threat, but it just doesn't seem like it makes sense to me. Well, and you bring up, I mean, you're flowing into this for me, cover maneuver. It's like the next portion, which is one of the six skills. Cover maneuver is why is why are both officers maneuvering? Why are both officers? And when I say maneuver, what I mean is go back to the old Latin or French, man. It means to, to do work, to accomplish a task. It's like manos for hands or manipulate, to, to accomplish a task. And in that scenario that you've given me on the tar stop is both officers are talking or interviewing, and they're both doing work, and, and none of them is covering. And the cover aspect is, hey, you have to protect me while I'm doing something. That could be something really tactical, like reloading or changing weapon systems or moving or crawling or searching something. But in a lot of cases, it could be something really, really low-key, like, hey, cover me. I have to tie my shoes. Hmm. Or cover me. We're going to talk to this person. Watch my back for me. So the cover element is critical. Hey, one person accomplishes a task. The other one protects them. I do have a suggestion for officers out there about situational awareness. There was uh, one incident that happened at my home. I had a uh, salesperson at my door who refused to get off my property, so I yelled at them and they left. One of the neighbors heard it and thought maybe I was beating my wife or something. I don't know. So they called the police, whatever, and and two officers showed up. And it was a a smallish female officer that that was at the door because I think that's easier to talk to women. Maybe that's why they did that. And her partner, uh, a guy, was standing uh, where he couldn't be seen uh, behind the garage, except the sun was at his back, so he was perfectly silhouetted on the sidewalk. So, of course, I knew he was there, and I even pointed it out to him. And I think that's an example of, yeah, he's covering her, but he's doing it in a way that he's given up his uh, – it was clear that he was there with the intent that I would not know he was there, and yet – you know, that was pretty, that was like a Groundhog Day event, I guess. Yeah, but we also have to look at the positives that the, it's better that he, he wasn't standing right next to her. That's true. That's true. That's absolutely well, I, You know, I, I try to look at the positive side of this and say, was this ideal? No, it may not have been ideal or preferred, but definitely better than a, a bad alternative. Correct, correct. I could have seen that too. So I'm just saying, though, it isn't like sometimes you like you think you've done everything right and you do have to kind of stay aware but I don't pretend to know how to do your job. So, um, But when we come with cover and maneuver, another thing we – and I, I think everybody gets this because we see it on TV all the time in tactical situations, back-to-back. Back. Yeah, back-to-back. Back. That's one of our next skills is – so let's just do a quick recap. We've got the crossfire and the priority fire. We lump those together because they're – don't hurt each other on the team. Correct. And then we lump the next two, which is flanking and cover maneuver – which is really maintain some diversity of tasks and separation of where you're at. So don't be doing the same thing or be in the same place. And then the next two that we're going to lump up is going to be back-to-back and cross-clearing. So back-to-back. Well, I'll put it like this. Why does a battleship never shoot itself, Jack? 
Why does a battleship never shoot itself? It's incapable of turning its guns on itself. Right. The guns point out. So if you look at two officers that, I mean, at one extreme, their backs are literally touching one another. Those two officers are not going to be in a priority fire or a crossfire situation. Yet they're both protecting each other from the opposite side. So they're more likely to shoot themselves than each other at that point. Correct, yeah. So it's kind of like they're each watching 180 degrees of the battle space out there. So I'll put it like this. You're walking down a a long hallway, maybe in your business, maybe in your home, maybe in a hotel, and it stops and it turns into a T. So that hallway stops and then it goes left and right. Well, two officers walking down that hallway really have two options. One is the officer on the left checks the left. The officer on the right checks the right. So whether their backs are physically touching or not, they're both protecting each other. They're mutually supporting each other. But now you, you flip that and say, well, the sixth skill here, which is the cross-clearing or the cross-coverage, is you basically cross the angles of view. So that same hallway, that same key intersection those officers come up on, the officer on the right is actually checking to the left. And the officer on the left is checking the right. So they're intersecting. They're they're crossing their streams. So what we want to do is understand that there are going to be applications for times that you watch your own side and there's times when you watch your partner's side. And a lot of it has to do with what's the barricade, how far apart are you, Um, different environmental factors. But I guess what's more important than picking one of those two is that you just recognize that we have to protect each other. I think well, another thing that probably plays into that is what, what, what hard cover is available and the way that hard cover is available because that's going to determine a lot of how we're going to cover each other. Sure. You know, I know there's a, a, big, uh, a big military contingent of your listeners. So when you're talking about uh, crossing a stream or a roadway or a bridge, right, a lot of these same cross-cover back-to-back components are really at the root. They are the simple machine. It's one of the simple machines of a more complex maneuver like crossing that road, crossing the bridge, crossing the riverbed. Yeah, I, yeah, it's it absolutely is. I mean, you're going back to, you know, even with my level of military training, things that we were taught drilled into us over and over and over again. So can we talk about maybe how some of this stuff plays into certain applications, like you were just talking about there, um, but more of the urban stuff, suburban stuff, like room entry and, and building clearing and searching and the, these functions that you know law enforcement officers have to do you know, sometimes on a daily basis, especially with searching. And I think sure. that we, we sit back here, right, and we look at it and go, hey, you looked in the guy's trunk, big deal, that's what you're supposed to do. But every time you guys do that, you're making yourself vulnerable. Sure. Anytime that you enter into an unknown area, there's an element of danger. There's an element of the unknown and, and what could happen. And I do want to make sure that I relate this in a way that the everyday person, the concealed carry holder, the homeowner, the family man or woman, uh, son or daughter, who's responsible for protecting, whether it be your, your school, your home, your apartment, your dormitory, uh, your place of business, and there's still an element of all of these things. And so when I talk about building clearing or room entry, what, 
what I want you to uh, think is how would I search my home when something goes bump in the night? You know, one of the things that you're a huge stickler on, Jack, is, is the order of probability. Correct. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And and what's the likelihood of them happening? And when I talk about doing a building search, is that's you checking your house when something falls in your uh, downstairs, and you have to go and check on it. So you know, and let me bring something up while you're saying that because I've had people say to me, "Well, if somebody breaks in my house, all I would do is just stay put and wait." Uh, if I was pretty sure somebody was there, I'd call 911 and wait and set up an ambush. I'm like, well, that's fine until you're in your bedroom and your 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 eight-year-old daughter's in her bedroom across the other side of the house. Oh, wait a minute. Now maybe you, you can't just, you know, sit there and wait. Now you've got to actually move through that, that house. I want to urge all your listeners to listen to Masad Ayyub's podcast that he did with you uh, several weeks ago. And it, the whole idea of either standing your ground, castle doctrine, and... Are you out there hunting? Are you looking for the fight? Are you pushing in on the person? Or is it something that you're just going to hold up and say, I'm going to wait for somebody else to come. I'm going to wait for the police. I'm going to wait for uh, daylight. I'm going to wait for something that's more advantageous. So that's a real critical, critical decision is, do I have to push into this? But you're exactly right. If your child's bedroom is downstairs or if you're up, if you sleep downstairs and your kids upstairs you can't wait so there has to be a there has to be action taken by the homeowner there has to be action taken by someone that investigates it and when when something goes bump in the night it happens all the time how many times are you going to call the police to investigate that correct you can't they will they will but once but in a time of limited resources and limited uh government budgets, it may be a little bit. And it might be a lot longer if you've done it three times in the past four months. <laughs> exactly. And if you start dealing with, hey, if times go bad and the response time is even longer, if not days, look at the, Katrina is a perfect example. You're backlogging 911 calls for days at a time. God forbid something like that happens. We have to be self-sufficient in investigating certain problems in our homes. Could you talk about how maybe this would apply, though, in a situation like, you know, it would be great if my wife was was really well-trained with a gun. She basically knows how to use one, and and, and that's pretty much it. And getting her to do this type of a a training is probably not going to happen. And I'm sure there's other folks out there, and I'm not going to say other men. It could be other women out there even that – are, you know they're in a in a marriage or in a family where it's okay it's okay that you have a gun but I'm not going to do it so now I'm a I'm not in a team movement right and I'm still doing this how do some of these this not how does some of this knowledge and skill translate when all of a sudden I have to operate as an individual I guess I still have to think about where my family is and and and, and treat them as a member of my team even if they're not proactive that's part of it there's nothing different than in the scenario that you've explained than in a typical police agency. You have officers with disparities in training, in differences in mindsets, in, in different values, different risks that they're willing to take that have received different amounts of training, some of it good training, some of it bad training. So what you're talking about really is a disparity in the mindset and, and in the skill level and the understanding to do that. 
But what not I to find mention, despite what the TV says, not every officer is running around with a partner in their car. I usually see them alone, and sometimes they can't wait for backup. Right. So what I, where I find great value is in these six concepts, what we have is the ability for one well-minded person, well-minded tactician, to have an influence over another person by that particular the well-trained person has to understand each of these six concepts. So they may be the one that recognizes the priority of fire issue. So they're going to put themselves behind the less skilled officer, the less skilled tactician. They're going to start making movements to correct crossfire. They're going to start making determinations of, I'm going to cover while you tie your shoes, or I'll cover while you open the door. So now you have that, that leadership element again. So the person with the more training, the more understanding of these six concepts, that's the leader. That's the one who's having an effect over a team, even with a person without the same skill level. So I'm married. I have kids at home, and my wife knows how to use handguns, but she doesn't understand some of these skills. She's getting there, but I understand that I have a – an intimate knowledge of these things because I've just ingrained them to be a part of me. I can influence how she moves and what she does and what roles and responsibilities I give her. It's going to take more communication for me to do that because I have to, all right, you have to stay here and watch the stairs while I check the rest of this. Now, one of my best teammates, he and I don't have to have that conversation. I'll just say, you wait, and he knows exactly what his role is. So is it possible? It's totally possible, Jack. Um, again, but it's important for the one person to possess the, the, the skills of uh, these six concepts and be able to talk about them, to be able to explain what kind of the, the big strategy is in very plain language. We're not using jargon here. It's just very plain English language. And I, I, I guess that would make it very important that we, we learn these skills rather than just practice formations of movements, that we actually have both the intellectual and mechanical understanding. Yes. There needs to be a link of understanding them conceptually and then actually putting them into play. So part of that is I've done some of that already by explaining back-to-back and cross-clearing, by explaining how those two different concepts are applied in a T intersection, in a hallway. But we have to start looking at them and say, okay, great. Yeah, we can talk about it. We can look at pictures on uh, my website about it. Um, so I get it. But again, much like we start combining these simple machines, right, into, into the, you know, start increasing the kinematic chains, gears, racks and pinions, cranks and rods, belt drives. We, started, we start taking those six skills and start combining them. So now, when you're with your buddy on the firearms range, instead of just standing next to each other hitting bowling pins or silhouettes, you can start looking at things that says, hey, you know what, I'm going to crouch down here, or I'm going to get down on my knees. You come up over the top of me and fire over my head. Now, what's important there is that we understand priority of fire, is that that officer who's on top in the, in the back has to be so close. He has to have intimate body contact there, making sure that his muzzle control is very, very safe and, and that his muzzle is up and over that downed officer's head 
But what we can do is we can start practicing a very concrete skill there, a high-low. One officer high, one officer low that obeys that priority of fire. So The other thing we need is a range where you can do that because there are a lot of ranges where you cannot do that. So that's that's a, a, a prerequisite there as well. Well, it's been a very slow process even in police work in that there are certain rules that involve yellow lines drawn on the ground or, you know, different sidewalks on a, on a grassy range that we have to be very mindful of that says, you know, you can't go in front of us, you can't go behind us. So we have to demonstrate that we have a, a process here. We, we have a definite method, a, a, learning, um, a learning system that builds on these things. We're not just going to jump in and do bounding overwatch. So we're not just going to set up a bunch of cars downrange or a bunch of garbage cans downrange or bare target stands downrange and do a tactical leapfrog live fire drill. Because that quite honestly makes most even police range masters get a little tingle down under. And in a civilian range where there's even less control, less understanding of what the disparities in, in firearms knowledge and training experiences, that makes them extremely nervous. So I know a lot of ranges. Also, you can't you can't even double tap at a lot of ranges. I mean, there's and I, I understand why because you look down, you, you know, you you look around and you see guys that are really safe and really safety conscious, and you see some people you're like, that guy bought his first gun 15 minutes ago. Absolutely, and that's not a person you, you need to be on the range here with. No. We do have to recognize that some of these drills can also be done in your home. Some of these drills are things that are done with unloaded weapons in the house. Um, depending on the property. Now, I live in a neighborhood in suburbia. I, I can't be doing uh, bounding overwatch drills in my backyard. Um, my neighbors are going to get a little suspicious. Sure. Um, sure. But I can do those drills in my house. Sure. And I can start implementing and showing a little bit more to my wife and my brothers or my dad or friends when they start coming over and saying, hey, let's start talking about some of these drills that, uh, that we're doing. So I think there's a good case. There's a good case in those drills too for using uh, non-lethal training uh, alternatives too, like the CERT. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that device, or you know, airsoft. Oh, absolutely. Anytime that you can use a gun that doesn't shoot real bullets, the safety factor goes up. <laughs> Safety's good. One of the so, drills that uh, that we like to look at is, hey, you are searching your house with your wife with your brother, with your dad, with your son. And I look at a home and say, all right, how do I have to strategize my house? And how do I have to search this? And one of those uh, top, top uh, priorities for me is I have to search my house from my master bedroom. I have to look and say, all right, how am I going to sweep my own home for danger from my bedroom through the entire house? And you have to look at that. You have to look at that very differently as a homeowner than you would in your day job, right? Or I know whether you work nights or days, but you know what I'm saying. Because if you came in to search my house as a law enforcement officer, you're going to begin the search unless you do some kind of window blowout or something on either the front door or the back door. That's not how I am most likely to have to do that as a homeowner, though. But the six things, the six tactical concepts that I use. And in my own house, and that I use on my job are identical. So the layout is different when I when I sweep my house from my front door to, 
my basement, then my back door, then my side door, and my master bedroom. But the same six skills apply. And that's what I find great value in, is that we're not trying to rehearse it over and over again. If we stick to these six skills, I can search your home from your bedroom, from your basement, from your side door, from your rear door. Because part of my job is doing building searches almost every day. So we have wide application of a very broad set of skills. Yeah, absolutely. You just got me thinking, you know, generally when I, what I, I do think is that the, the homeowner, in other words, you know your home better than I do. So there's, you know, like a home field advantage there. But a lot of times I think maybe we even, if we do these drills in our mind, there might be parts of our home that we could be in when something goes on that we've never really thought about it from that standpoint. Now you got to fall back to the skills and the mindset. But I also am a big believer, you know, as a student of the art of war, if there's an advantage, you take it. And it might be a really good idea for every homeowner to think about how you would do this in advance from every location you could be in, including returning home. You've just hit the garage door open or something's not right. So you're out in the backyard. Now you're coming in through the back door. For me, I'm thinking I'm sitting way in the back of my house now in my office, and I've never really thought about having to respond from here. And I'm sitting here right now. You've got me thinking, what would my options be? But again, Jack, we have to look at this and say, all right, what's the importance of going in here? And what's the urgency? Because Correct. if that urgency doesn't exist, are you going to fall for the trap of I'm hunting for somebody? And what we want to say is, no, we're not hunting, but at some point we have to make sure. Now, is the case going to be different if there's something weird on my front door? My front door is always locked, and my daughter comes home from school, and she uses the side door. She uses this door. Why is this door open? Now, does it make sense for me to go in and not wait for a lengthy response from the police? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. especially because my I know my daughter's supposed to be in there. So yeah, I'm yeah, like I'm thinking right now. You, you would you do this or not? Well, I'm thinking my wife's on the other side of the house right now. You bet your ass I would because her safety is my responsibility. Exactly, but but the first question has to be is is there a sense of is there a sense of urgency? Well, what's the importance for me doing this instead mm-hmm. of waiting? Because we we do take that risk, and and it's a legal one that we don't want, want to find ourselves in trouble having to explain this like. Hey, Rambo, why don't you go and, and, and check your house and push in on this fight? Uh, you should have waited for pros that do this every day. Well, I also think there is, if, you, if there is no threat to anybody else in the home, let's say you're the only one home and you know that, it, remaining in place and, and being smart about how you do it actually gives you quite a tactical advantage. Um, the same way that I have a tactical advantage as a deer hunter when I'm motionless in a stand and the deer's the one doing the movement. So there's, there, it's both a legal risk and a tactical risk to me if you don't have to to engage in that type of activity. Well, and just because you're searching your own house doesn't mean that you uh, you go back to the car, you put your vest on, and you load up with uh, helmet and uh, <laughs> long weapon, right? There's lots and lots of building searches that I do as a police officer without my weapon out, without a, a, a gun out. Because sure. the danger level isn't there. When the old lady calls and says, oh, I heard something go bump in the night, and all the doors are still locked up around the house, the danger level is much lower. So it, it almost it is uh, overkill for me to have a weapon on at that point because I really can't articulate a danger. So mm-hmm. I do go through the motions to give a sense of security to the woman. But, you know, again, order probabilities. 
oh, look, ma'am, I'm sorry. Look, your your, uh, your mirror fell down, and, and it cracked on the floor here. Here, let me sweep this up for you. And sure. Have a good night. I'm, I'm so glad nobody broke in tonight. Look, your garbage can's upside down outside, a raccoon or a cat or something, you know, let me let me help you. Yeah, I get you. So it's one thing. So you can do all these same tactical maneuvers by searching your house without the gun. You can do the same thing with a baseball bat or a golf club or nothing. Just get your flashlight out, check your house, but do it in a systematic way that if something were to go bad, you can always pull back, call the pros. Like, oh, man, my back door is smashed in. This is bad. But all my family's upstairs locked in the master bedroom with uh, my oldest. So it's now my wife and I searching the house. Oh, you know what? It is bad. Not urgent. Let's back up. Hi, 911 operator. Hi, I was checking on uh, noise downstairs. My back door smashed in. Send all the help you can. I'll be locked in the master bedroom. It's the window that's going to have the flickering light that my wife is turning on and off. And, yes, we're armed in here, so please tell us when you're about to come in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that would be, that's not just being protective of yourself legally. That's being freaking smart and, and maintaining what you have at the point. It, to me, you have a, a massive tactical advantage at that point, unless you're dealing with a SEAL team or something like that. The, the, the random burglar, um, or, or person that means to do you harm that's broken into your home is, is not a pro. Uh, very few of them are pros when it comes to tactical things. I'm sure you've seen that play out. They're dangerous. But you're in a position where you've pretty much got one area to cover now, and all you have to do is wait it out. And if the, the police get there before the guy becomes a, a lethal threat, so much the better. But if they don't, you've got a pretty clear way to defend yourself at that point. And you're standing on good legal grounds. Hey, I did everything I could. We were up in the master bedroom. I had everybody in there in panic room mode. The guy, we had the door locked. I think I kicked the door down. I'm, you know, I, I had no choice. Yeah, and I'd like to think that most laws have been gone in with the intent of making us smarter. Now, when they actually get put to play, sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of a hiccup there. But a lot of the laws are out there to keep us in check. A lot of the procedural case law that the police are bound by when we exercise powers is is in everybody's best interest, including the police and the citizens and the suspect. So it tries to prioritize things. We should be doing the same as homeowners. When we check our properties and businesses, we have to maintain the big picture. We have to see things from the, the very broadest sense. I completely agree. Now, this this six tactics is part of something that's bigger. You have a website on this called the Illinois Model. Can you kind of give us a summary of what that's all about and how these tactics fit into it? Sure. Um, I have a group of officers that... Uh, we provide training for lots of police, lots of SWAT members, and it's called the Illinois model. We're all from different uh, police municipalities within Illinois. And what we look at is that, all right, when, we, when anybody responds to a problem, whether you're a businessman, right, you have a problem. The problem is I don't have enough money. I need to make money. I need to sell things. I need to make the, the product appealing. I need people to walk into my store. That kind of goes from the very broadest sense to the, uh, a, a detail. You know, and you can either further detail it that says, I want to sweep my floors to make it clean for my people to come into. I want to turn the lights on, make it bright so they can see them. Those are details. But the big picture is there's a problem, I need money, so I'm, I'm going to start a business. And sometimes we don't look at that from law enforcement. 
This model was specifically tailored as a law enforcement operation system. And our goal is to get officers to think big picture. Hey, what are the priorities? What are the threats here? How dangerous are the crimes? And how dangerous are these people? And then once we identify what these problems are and, and who's who, is we have to look at things legally. Hey, is there a lawful reason for me to be searching this area? Is there a lawful reason for me to be detaining or seizing or arresting this person? Um, and then, hey, what do I want to get out of this? Do I want to rescue the downed people? Do I want to arrest the bad guy? Do I want to take the suicidal man to the hospital? So we have to keep ourselves in check. So, hey, first there's a problem, and then there's legal constraints, and what is our objective? And then the next part is we have a strategy, which is, well, we've, we've already talked about strategy. Do I push into the problem and do the search, do the seizure? Do I run into it, or do I back off and wait for more resources? So when you look at uh, police response, there's, there's two kind of bookends to the spectrum. One is, whoa, it's really dangerous in there, but it's not super urgent. I'm going to wait. So you call specialists, people like negotiators, like SWAT, like canine, like bomb techs. But then there's other incidents where, whoa, this is really bad, and we need to put ourselves into the problem now. So the active killer, the active shooters, the school violence, workplace violence, uh, church violence. So you can't wait for the resources. So again, we can kind of relate that to the homeowner. Of, hey, am I going to barricade my family in the master bedroom, or am I going to go searching down there because I hear my daughter screaming? That's urgent. We need to go down there now. We can't wait. So, and then once we have that plan of, hey, are we going to wait? Are we going to go slow? Are we going to go fast? Are we going to go really fast? We have to say, well, how are we going to do it? How is our movement going to look? So whether it's an individual officer or, in our case, the teams, whether it be a two-officer team or large 50-man tactical element, is they have to obey certain things such as back-to-back, cross-clearing, cross-fire, priority of fire, flanking, cover maneuver. And you can do all those things fast or you can do them slow. So whether it's a perimeter, those same skills uh, get applied, or whether it's chasing the, the active killer through a, a school, same six skills. And then we say, and then of course, there's individual skills and equipment. So that's the proficiencies with certain weapons, skills, observation, uh, verbal skills, just mobility, being able to walk, things like those. And uh, so both technical skills and, and soft skills. So we like to look at this as a, as a big integration and a prioritization. It's much more important to have a good ethical and lawful um, objective than it is to be a great shooter, uh, a great martial artist, uh, a great communicator. We can do all those things right, but be in really poor footing. So um, that's part of our big plan. The Illinois model has been uh, catching on, being adopted by more and more police agencies as a big system that we can look at all police problems from. And there's a lot of, uh, of the same trends here that we can look at in our personal lives of identifying problems, prioritizing things, figuring out what the, the lawfulness is, what constrains us or what empowers us, then looking at that sense of urgency and then how we work together. 
Now, you guys do do training courses. I'm on your site looking at that right now, but it seems like all of the training you guys do, active training, is done for law enforcement only, not for civilians. Well, yeah, right now we're just providing training to law enforcement. Um, there's a chance that that's going to be changing. I'm working on developing uh, a lot more content on our website that is a little bit more universal application and uh, we're working on a podcast series also to start getting some of this information out that's kind of sanitized that doesn't include all the dirty little secrets of policing that we, we still have to maintain. Gotcha, because, I mean, you can only give away so much to, let's say, the outside world. But I think there's a tremendous demand for this type of thing, and I think that it makes sense if we're going to say that civilians are, are going to be armed, if they're going to defend their, their life and the lives of their community members, that they have access to the very best training possible, not just to be effective, but to be lawful and responsible. So I, I'm glad to hear that you guys are moving at least a little bit in that direction. Yes, you know, the, the likelihood of a concealed carry folder being interrupted by a crime or walking in on a dangerous situation is a very, very real possibility and to some extent a probability. And I think it might be. I think it might be higher than a uniformed officer because if I'm a near to well or whatever, and I see you in your black and white or your uniform, I have a, a, okay. There's a cop, and I'm going to think a little bit more about how I commit a crime at that point. Where if I just see a random person on the street, I'm you know I might go into my my general mo. So in some instances, it may be, at least in certain instances, in certain areas, more likely that the concealed carry holder will witness the crime rather than respond to the crime the way that an officer will. Absolutely. And if you have made that decision as that responsible citizen that says, I cannot just be a good witness here. I'm not going to witness the carnage. I need to, I need to act. So you have to say, I'm not just hunting for a problem. I actually have to respond to a real problem. And right. when that happens, you have to recognize that everybody else there, everybody else there that, who's an innocent person that you're there to protect and that you've, you've sold yourself on protecting, you have to understand that they're part of your team. So you have to be mindful of priority of fire and crossfire and maybe calling out that biggest, baddest-looking football player guy in the area that says, watch my back while I do this. Yeah, And that's where somebody who's never even been exposed to these six core concepts can actually be working with them and in compliance with them at the direction of one who does. I think we've seen in a crisis situation when someone stands up like that and leads, not everybody, but the majority of people do follow the leadership because at that point they're, they're in need of it and they're looking for it. Absolutely, there's a void there. Not everybody knows how to fill it. So I encourage our officers, and now I encourage your listeners, that says, if you have that knowledge, if you believe that you have to take action, which I urge that's being done with great restraint, but if you have to take action, step up, start giving assignments, start obeying some of these rules here so we can do it safer. We don't need people caught in crossfires. We don't need you being hurt. We need, hey, if I'm in plain clothes off duty, I need to tell people, wait for the police to show up and tell me when they're here. I don't want to be hurt by them being confused as a bad guy. So all those things play in. And when you start giving direction, that's leadership. Leadership in a crisis 
tends to get a lot of followers. Absolutely. I completely agree. So people can learn more about uh, the Illinois method uh, at the Illinois method or the Illinois model. I'm sorry, the Illinois model.com, right? The Illinois model.com. There's a lot of resources that I'm posting up there and uh, I continue to put more and more information out there. Talk about more contemporary issues with uh spin towards the police, but a lot that uh, the civilian and the military market is going to uh, find value in. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure I have a link to that in today's show notes, and I'd like to uh, thank you on two levels. I'd like to thank you for being here with us today on the show and sharing your insights and your expertise, and I'd like to thank you for your service to our community and law enforcement as well. Yeah, it's been such an honor to talk to you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners today. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Lou Hayes, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Show you.